Father, first we give you thanks. We know that you are the one who hears everything. You hear our prayers. And Father, we understand that if we come to you and we call upon you for mercy, for we are sinners as well, that you forgive us. You are faithful and just to do this. And so, Father, first we call upon you for your mercy after we give thanks. And secondly, we call upon you for healing of Mike. Father, we had asked that you would reach in his body and you just take away the cancer that you would enable him to be restored and continue the work a little longer on this earth. But, Father, if that is not according to your will, we would pray for a blessing upon Jackie, that you would take her heart, keep it close, comfort her and his daughters, Lord, and the grandchildren as well, and all who know Mike. We pray that there would be a celebration of his life should you choose to take him home, but we're praying and hoping, Lord, for a healing. We thank you for Papa Joe getting the proper medical treatment. We thank you for Linda, Lord, that we have, again, this medical treatment that can just restore us to some degree physically. And, Father, for your word, we ask you to bless your word as it goes out, that you would bring us to unity and fullness as we walk in the Spirit, knowing what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. Help us to maintain our walks on the paths that you have set for us. And be those disciples that you have called us to be. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to take out your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 28. I need to ask, what did Eric read? I was out. Acts. He wrote it. Okay, Acts. So this is Matthew chapter 28. This is concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is early in the morning when the sun comes up in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going into the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on the way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now the time period from the beginning of this chapter to the end of this chapter is 40 days. Jesus appeared to his disciples and those whom he wanted to appear to at least some say 10 times, some say 12 times, some say 11 times. It was somewhere in that range that's actually recorded in scripture. How many times did he actually appear to people? It could have been hundreds of times. These are just the ones that are recorded, but I'd like you to turn over to John chapter 20. And this is another account and it's listed in all four gospels, but this is another account of the resurrection. John chapter 20, (coughs) excuse me, in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As a father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord 
and my God. Then Jesus told them, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have life in his name. So I'm going to ask a question that is in two parts. If someone asks you, what is Easter or the Resurrection Sunday? What would be the biblical answer and why does it matter? You know, there, there are so many things about Easter that muddle what it is actually about. The Easter celebration, and it deals with the goddess Ashtart and Diana of the Ephesians. She was a sex goddess is what she was, a multiple-breasted statue figure that uh, would be up in this temple. And people worshipped sex is what they worshipped. And that's why you have the bunny rabbits. And I think most of you know this information. And that's why they have the eggs, because it's a sign of fertility, and it's in the spring. And so we take all of that, and we mix that together with the sugary peeps, and we say, this is Easter. This is something that we need to celebrate as a culture. Now, culturally speaking, I think it's fine to have an Easter egg hunt. Bring a little joy to the kids. The kids are not going to become idol worshipers of Ashtart if they collect a few eggs with some stuff in them, you know, some pennies and coins and gummy bears and stuff like that. Go ahead, have some fun. But do not set up a goddess, Diana, in your front room and say, okay, now we're going to bow down to this goddess. The Lord never said that we couldn't participate in these cultural things just like we will do with Christmas, right? Christmas, we have the Christmas tree. All of that is fine. It is cultural. We are not worshiping some false deity. We are not worshiping the Christmas tree or the circle of life and the evergreen wreath, that type of thing. So God says he gives us the freedom to do things like that. We're just supposed to avoid idol worship. But when it comes to Easter, the average person who comes to the United States, if they were to travel all 50 states, what, what would they see? They would see Easter eggs. They would see that plastic grass that's in the baskets. They would see bunnies. They, they would see all kinds of things. But would they get the message of Easter? What is it that is the Resurrection Sunday and why does it matter? Well, the answer to what is the Resurrection Sunday, I tried to simplify it as much as I could. It is, the God who became man was crucified for our sins, died, was buried, and rose to life again, and is alive today. Just a side note, could we get the fans on in here? Just blowing the fans, please. So the answer again is, the God who became man was crucified for our sins, died, was buried, and rose to life again, and is alive today. So why does that matter? I mean, if you go to some foreign country like Cambodia, where we've been, 95% of the people over there are Buddhist. Why does the message that Jesus Christ can forgive us our sins, why does that matter to them? They really don't believe in a God. They believe they go to the nothingness, which is out there, and become part of the nothingness. It is a godless religion, so to speak. And what would you say to them if, if they said, well, what is Easter? What, what is this all about? Well, the first thing I'm going to start with is sin. Now, we have different views of what sin is. Sin, in the classic sense, is where you have an archer 
and he pulls back an arrow and he aims for the bullseye and he misses. Just off the mark is what it means. That means if you're trying to be good as God is good and you shoot an arrow towards the mark of being good, you're always going to miss. It's always going to go off. It's like something's going to keep that arrow from penetrating the center of that bullseye. And there's no way you can practice enough to hit that bullseye. And that's what sin is. Now, one person, has put, a couple of people have put it like this. There is inherent sin. There is imputed sin. And there is personal sin. Now, I like the way the person described this. You're not going to find these particular things in Scripture, but this is how you read the Scripture and you put it together and you go, well, how can I understand this? There is what is known as this inherent sin or original sin. If you were to walk your life with Christ or without Christ and you never committed an actual sin in your life, if you never broke one of the Ten Commandments, if you never had another God before the one true God, if you never made an image of any God and bowed down to it, or that's just metaphorical for something that you may worship. It may be a car, a family, a child. It may be a job. It may be money. It may be something else. If you've never made an idol and served that idol, if you've never taken God's name in vain, the Sabbath day, and remember to keep it holy, that is something that we find in Christ in the New Testament covenant. You know, if you've never honored your, or if you've always honored your mother and father, if you've never gotten mad or angry at them and never told them off, so to speak, if you've always told the truth and never lied, if you've never murdered, if you've never stolen anything, if you've never coveted anything, if you've never done any of that whatsoever, you still cannot go to heaven. And the reason you cannot go to heaven is because of original sin or inherent sin. Something that is inherent or the original sin, it is part of what makes us who we are. If you take that away, we cease to be who we are, right? We cease to be human. That would be like if you take away the DNA, we cease to be human. Well, you can't take away the DNA and still be you, right? You would fall apart or turn into a plant or who knows what you would be, but you cannot be you. And we are, the way we are right now, all of us in the human race, we are a group of people that has this original sin that has come to us by Adam and Eve. It's all Adam's fault. No, it's all his wife's fault. She ate first, right? And then it's Adam's fault. God said, Adam, you're the one responsible for this. Where were you? How come your wife was eating this? And of course, he was standing by. We don't know what else went on, but he ate because she told him to. But he was held responsible for that. Because he was disobedient, then the sin came in to him and to his wife, Eve. That means part of who they were, they got a new nature. This nature is a sinful nature. That's what the original sin is. And God looks at us and he said, you know what? You were in Adam, so you therefore are guilty as well. And you say, but I didn't sin. No, but you have his sin nature. We have his sin nature. And you might say, that's not fair. Well, remember, Adam was perfect and he fell. And I've mentioned this before. You are imperfect. Do you think you wouldn't fall? You see, we would fall. He was perfect. He had everything. So did Eve. And they still fell. And this all has to do with the free will. God gave them a choice. And being perfect, they made the wrong choice. They experienced what was known as original sin. So just as we get the characteristics of our parents, like I, I look at a picture of my father when he was my age. 
I look like my father. Uh, my father looks like me. And when he was young, when I was really young, I had hair that was almost white. It was so blonde. And I looked at a picture of my father years ago. He looked the same way. And the facial features, it's all the same. I have features of my mother as well. And my children, I can see in my children some of the features of my parents. I go, that is weird. You look like my parents, you know, and and they have these characteristics. Well, the same thing happens with the original sin. It's passed down just like the physical characteristics that the Lord gives to us from our parents. You cannot separate it from you. It is part of you, and it goes from parent to child parent to child and it never ends and that is what is called imputed sin that the sin is pushed upon us because adam had it now another part of the imputed sin is when the law came scripture tells us when there is no law there is no transgression that means if you do something and there's not a law that prohibits that you're free to do it Now, how many things can you think of that you would like to do that are not against the law? Now, they may be against God's law, but they're certainly not in the law that is out here, right? You can do things out here that you never thought you'd get away with. Like, for instance, are they always making up new laws? Why are they making up new laws? They're making up new laws because there's no transgression, and they want the transgression because then they get paid. There's a price to pay if there's a transgression. For instance, drones. They have manufactured all these drones, and there's no laws to govern them when they got them. And now they're coming up with all kinds of laws that if you violate those laws, you can be fined for that and you have broken the law, therefore you are a lawbreaker and you can be incarcerated. The same thing happened with the law that Moses gave. God gave the law through Moses and all of a sudden we realize the Ten Commandments, we are sinners. And therefore, since we have committed that sin because the law came, sin was imputed to us. It was ascribed to us. God looks at us and said, You have broken the law that Moses had. And you might say, well, what about before Moses? All the people from Adam to Moses died because of original sin. There was no sin that they committed that was written down in a law that codified evidence against them. But they died because they carried this nature, this sinful nature. And that's a perfect example how there is not a law And they are guilty of sin just because of who they are. God looks at us as the human race and says, you are all guilty. We are all guilty. There is not one righteous. No, not one. Now, this is what scripture tells us. And this is why the resurrection is important. Now, I'm going to go on with this. There is the original sin. There is the imputed sin. Then there is the personal sin. Now, I would say in here, there may be somebody in here who has committed murder, actual murder, where you've taken a gun or you've taken a knife or you've done something and you have taken a life of an individual. If you're in here, I don't know who you are. That that may be the case, but not everybody commits murder. Wouldn't you agree with that? But the person who says, I haven't committed murder, therefore I am more righteous, they are guilty. They are guilty of pride. And God hates pride. Do you think you're better than that person that committed sin? Have you lied? Well, a white lie. There's no such thing as a white lie. White lie, black lie, middle lie. It's all lies. Bearing false witness. We are all guilty. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Like OMG. And you write that on your little text thing. Are you really taking it in vain if you just use the initials? 
you know, that type of thing, we look at that. These are all personal sins. And some of these personal sins we're involved in, but others are not involved in. There may be a person that has just the mouth that is as pure as the wind-driven snow and smells like the lilies that are in front of me here and they never take a, a foul word. You know, even in uh, the book of Colossians, it says they're not supposed to be any filthy talk come out of your mouth at all. And we're supposed to put that stuff away. Or any unwholesome talk that doesn't benefit, Ephesians 4.29, doesn't benefit those who hear. And so those are personal sins. Some people have mastered one or two of those sins or maybe three or four. But nobody has mastered them all. Therefore, God looks at us and says, you have committed this sin. And because you have committed this sin, according to the law, this sin has been imputed to you and judgment is going to come as a result of that. So you have the inherent sins, which is the original sin. You have the imputed sins, which are given to us because of the law or we are guilty because of the law. Then we have the personal sins. And by the way, with the personal sins, that's where we judge each other. We sit there and say, well, I'm more righteous than you. Sorry, you are an original sinner. You have that sin in you, and you are no more righteous than the next person because our God is perfect. He judges perfectly and has a perfect standard, and nobody in this life measures up except for one. Now, in the book of Romans, in chapter 7, and I will just read this. This deals with the imputed sin. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded it by the commandment, produced in me every type of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... Sin sprang to life and I died. I found that very commandment that was indeed or intended to bring life actually brought death for sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the command deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. And then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. I mean, you can go on in this and all of a sudden it starts getting a little muddy. You go, what is he saying there? What's, what's he talking about there? It's Before the law came, he said, you know, I was free from sin. But the law comes, and you look at it, you go, this law is good. But the law goes, aha, but you are guilty. I'm guilty. And you go, you deceived me. I thought you were good. And yet, you bring judgment to me. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So we're all guilty. All of us, we're in the same boat, right? We're just going around in circles until the whirlpool just sucks us all down and we're under judgment. That's the way it works. That's the fate, not only of everybody in this room, but the entire human race. Now, what are you going to do with this? You know, we are, we are guilty. If we were drug into a court of law, we would be capitalized if it was God's court, so to speak. God would say, we are condemned because the sin that has been imputed to us, that is original to us, and our personal sins has made us guilty. And by the way, this sin, it is confirmed in Scripture, it came by one guy. One guy allowed this sin to come into the world. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. You see that? So it's talking about the original sin of Adam, and it's talking about the imputed sin from the law. Now, 
I don't want to go too far down this theological road because the eyes will start to glaze over and it, it, that's a Bible study all by itself. The only thing I want you to know is that like me, everyone in here is guilty. And what does that guilt mean? Well, with that guilt, there's a penalty. Soccer, you know, they're trying to do the soccer stadium down in uh, San Diego at Qualcomm where the Qualcomm site is. And you can get a red card, right? Or a yellow card. They will hold that up. Or in football, real football, you can have the referee throw a flag. There's a penalty that's coming because there's a violation, right? And because of this, like in hockey, what do they do? They put you in the box. They make you sit in there for a little while and then people throw stuff at you from behind you, you know, and they just taunt you, that type of thing. You're in the penalty box. You have been find, so to speak, with timeout or whatever it might be. If you were a wrestling in college or in the Olympics, they would penalize you and they would give points to your opponent. And so that actually works against you. So what is the penalty for sin? Well, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is this physical death that we are all going to experience. Now, there are a couple of people in Scripture that did not experience physical death. Can you name them? Enoch, right? He's one. Elijah. Yes, that's correct. Elijah is another. Now, some people say, well, Moses. No, Moses died. God buried him. Uh, but he may be coming back, it may be with Enoch, it may be with Elijah. Now, how did Elijah go? I, was, I just went through First and Second Kings Chronicles, and it was just a great story. He went in at what was it called? But it's also Chariot of Fire, and they made a movie, right? It's called The Chariots of Fire. Remember that, Eric Little, you know, the runner? They, they called it Chariots of Fire. And, of course, it was a UFO, right? It just it came down, and it swooped him up, and Elisha was right there. And Elijah told Elisha, if you see me when I go away, you will get a double blessing. And he got a double blessing. He did double the miracles that Elijah did. And it's just incredible, the stories that you go through like that. But he was not killed. He was taken up to heaven. And Enoch, all we know is Enoch was not. That, that's all we know. What happened? I don't know. He didn't get on the ark, and he didn't die in the flood. But he was not. And so God took him. It must have been like a rapture thing that he took him. But he did not die. So there's two individuals in scripture that did not die. Even Jesus died. Now this is the penalty for sin. God didn't want us to go through life. He wanted us to choose right. But we didn't choose right in Adam. And because we didn't choose right in Adam, we're guilty like him. Therefore, we're under this penalty. And God says, you know what the penalty is? your life. Now, the bummer about this is you would think, okay, so if I give my life, then it's okay. And I get to go to heaven. No, you don't get to go to heaven. The problem with that is your life being given, your life isn't good enough as a sacrifice for God to say, okay, I'm going to let you in. No, he looks at you, uh, you died and you're going to stay dead because I don't like your sacrifice because you are utterly worthless. 
How's that for your self-esteem? The, the Lord just says, we are completely ruined. We are harmful to ourselves. That's why God has to give us a new body. He says, your body's not making it. You are not going to heaven the way you are now. I'm sorry, it has to be transformed. You have to have this new body. The one you have is so utterly sinful. You have this sinful nature in there. I cannot change it. I just have to burn it up. I just have to do away with it. And so we get new bodies when we go to heaven. When we get that new body and we go to heaven, we get this new nature. And we won't think an evil thought when we drive. Well, we probably won't be driving, but we won't think an evil thought when somebody gets angry at us. We'll just be as happy. Nobody's going to get angry. We're going to be happy all the time. Nobody's going to cry anymore. We're all going to be happy. Why are you smiling so much? Because, you know, everybody is just going to be filled with this joy that God is going to give us. It's going to be a great existence. We won't even be tempted to sin. It won't even be in front of us. We will go, what? Sin? What? Who? What? What is that? Sin is not going to be a part of our existence in the future. And that's what God is going to do for us. But this penalty still has to be enforced. The, The problem with this penalty is most people don't believe they're under this curse. They're under this penalty. What's the first thing when they say, if you ask them, do you believe in God? I'm a good person, right? They, they appeal to how good they are. Really, are you good? Have you taken God's name in vain? Well, yes. Have you stolen anything? Well, yeah, I've done that too. Really? Have you hated somebody without a cause? Well, yeah, I've done that too. Guilty, condemnation, under judgment, you will not go to heaven. And this message has to be told to everybody. Again, I'm focusing on the resurrection day. Why is that so important? First, it's sin. Then there's the penalty for sin. Sin requires that we die physically, but then there's this second, this resurrection that we will participate in. And not the first resurrection. The first resurrection is those who believe get resurrected in the rapture and at the tribulation period, and they rule and reign with Christ after that's all over, and they come back to life, and God says, that's great to be part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection, not so much. That's everybody from all time gets resurrected again. You thought you were dead. No, sorry. You're going to be resurrected again, but you're not going to be allowed if you don't know Christ to go to heaven. You're going to be judged. We are going to be judged. The human race is going to be judged for what we have done and how we have violated God's law. And unless we have accepted Christ, we are condemned to what is called the lake of fire. That's where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46 says, it is forever It does not end. There are sects of Christians that say, no, God is a righteous God and he will not suffer people to just die forever, to suffer forever. That's not true. We will exist forever because we are created in the image of God and God is eternal. And so we are going to be eternal. It just depends where we spend it. So this idea of the penalty, well, there's this redemption. Well, how do you get a hold of this redemption? How can you be redeemed from this penalty? Remember, we just went through the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, you had the sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the people when they were getting ready to exodus Egypt, to exit Egypt. And they sacrificed the lamb. and The blood was put on the doorpost and lintel, and the angel of death came over over the house, saw the blood and said, I'm going to pass over the house and nobody's going to be killed. We have the blood of Christ that washes our sins and makes us white as snow. So when the angel of death comes, sees us, oh, the righteousness of God rests upon you. You are no longer guilty. You have been justified, declared right in God's sight. Therefore, you get to go to heaven. Now, I I still don't want to make this too complicated, 
But this is how God set it up. And he wanted to make sure we knew this message. If you get together on Easter at a church and the church starts talking about the benefits of an Easter egg hunt, you know, or whatever it might be, they are missing it. They are not communicating what God wants you to communicate. And I'm sure there are churches all over the realm that they just go everywhere. God wants us to know the ramifications of the resurrection and by his blood we can have that guilt, that stain removed. You never thought that if you applied blood to something it would turn white, right? Well, that's exactly what happens, metaphorically speaking. Jesus' blood, which is red, crimson, when it's applied to us, it makes us white as snow, it makes us pure. Now, how do we make this effectual? How do we appropriate this? For instance, if you just stand there, is Jesus going to wash you and make your sins white as snow? No, he's not. You have to ask. You have to say, Jesus, will you forgive me of my sin? And he says, yes. If you're doing it just because you're dating somebody, sorry, disqualified. You have to do it because you know and understand, you realize you, just like me, we are sinners. And there's no way we're getting to heaven. We're being penalized. We're in the penalty box. We're going to the lake of fire. Everybody's under the same curse. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And so to appropriate this, you've heard me say this verse a million times. Well, maybe not a million, maybe a thousand, or maybe several hundred. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your mouth, or excuse me, with your heart that you believe and are justified, See, it takes that understanding here and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And people, it's like people need to hear it. Do you really believe in Christ? Well, you're like, right, okay. Oh, yes, I believe in Christ. Of course I do. He's my savior. I cannot get to heaven any other way. I cannot work to get there. That's discipleship. That's a whole nother matter. It's this idea of salvation. We have to appropriate this. We have to make sure we annex it into our lives. And the only way to do that is say, Jesus, please save me. There is not a written formula in Scripture except Romans 10, 9, and 10. And also, it says it in the uh, book of Acts chapter 30. It, it says to the, uh, Paul is speaking to the uh, Philippian jailer. And he says, uh, hey, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Believe in what? The fact that he can forgive you of your sins. Now see, that's the message of the resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it showed that he had power over this penalty of death. That he was not sinful. And because he was God in human form, his sacrifice of his life and his blood being poured out, the blood was perfect. Therefore, his blood has the power to forgive the sins of all who ask. But all who don't ask, don't get it appropriated to them. They don't get the forgiveness that God gives them. This idea of universalism, where people say, well, God is a God of mercy. He's going to forgive everybody. He clearly says that's not the case. He says, you have to ask. You have to want it. If you desire it with all your heart, God grants your request and he saves you. Some people, when they go forward or in an altar call, that's what an altar call is for, or they just raise their hand or they say the prayer. Once that happens, 
Sometimes they go, well, I don't know if I'm really saved, so I need to say the prayer again, and I say it every night. And if I don't say it every night, then I'm not quite sure. But then I say it every night, and I'm still not sure. So what do I do? Just believe. Just believe that God saves you. That's it? Don't I have to do something? No. People, but I have to do something. No. You don't. Not to get saved. Now, to be a disciple, that's a whole other matter. And guess who God calls to be a disciple? Those who get saved. So if you get saved, does God want you to be a disciple? Yes, he does. He wants you to be a disciple. What does that mean? Work, sweat, toil, sacrifice, but it doesn't get you entry into heaven. It is by the grace of God, his unmerited favor, that he just says, you get to go because you confess and you believe. Now, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to say a prayer. And I want the whole room to say the prayer. We're going to make sure if you're in doubt and you said it last night, well, you might be in doubt again in another hour, but you're going to say it right now with the group of us. All of us, I think, want to be saved, right? We want to go to heaven. And so we're going to say this prayer and we're going to ask God to forgive us our sins. So I want you to repeat after me. If you've never done this before, I'm going to say in advance, welcome to the kingdom. And if you have said it before and you doubt, well, here's your assurance. And if you've already said it, just say it to help others. You see, that's how it works. So I'm going to say this prayer so that everybody has an opportunity to be saved and to go to heaven. Then I'm going to give you further instruction. So please, everyone repeat this prayer after me. And by the way, if you don't want to be saved, don't say the prayer. Okay? I don't know who doesn't want to be saved, but you don't have to say the prayer. So please pray after me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I pray that you would wash me and make me clean. I believe you are able to save me. Please be my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, I believe. Amen. Now, if you've said that prayer and you are not a disciple, you don't know like, Basic stuff. The books of the Bible. Exodus, Genesis, which Lamentations. Uh, you know how it goes. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles. I could go on, but I'm not. This idea of, you know, do you know Jesus? Do you know anything about his disciples? Do you know the Apostle Paul? How many books were written by the Apostle Paul? Son, that's in question. You know, all of this stuff, the Ten Commandments. Do you know the Ten Commandments in order? This is basic 101 Christianity. If you have some question about that, Eric, who's at the back, he will raise his hand. He has a New Testament for you and he has a study, one of nine, one of seven studies. You will talk to him and you'll say, sign me up. I need to know the basics of the Christian faith. Like, what does it mean to lay on hands? What about baptism? What about that? You know, do do I need to know more about that? What about faith in God and death and, and life? Do I need to know this stuff? Yes, you do. The question, the answer to the question is yes, you need to know that. So see Eric and he will get that to you and you will be on the road to becoming a disciple and you will find yourself in obedience. By the way, scripture says... If you know that there is good you're supposed to do and you don't do it, what is it called? Sin. You mean if I don't do something that I should, it's sin? Yes. That's called the sin of omission. Now, what we're going to do at this point is we're going to receive communion. Communion is for all those who recognize that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, that his blood is effectual for taking away our sin, and he grants us entry into heaven. 
And we are supposed to go, once we become believers, and make other disciples. That means tell them about the glory of God and his goodness and the salvation that's here. Because we're all under sin. If they reject it, move to the next one. That's what God wants us to do. So when we receive the communion here, what we're doing is recognizing Jesus is the bread of life. That's why we take the bread. And Jesus' blood forgives us of our sin, washes us, makes us clean, white as snow. And we drink that. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he did this thing where he gave his disciples the bread and the cup. And so the worship team is going to come up. And what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. And as we're singing a song, if there's anything else you want to confess to God humbly, just turn to them and say, God, you know, I am so guilty. I've done this, I've done that. And you can list the sins for them just between you and God. Let him know that you want to be that pleasing disciple that he has called all of us to be. And that we might bring others into, your king, or into his kingdom. And we might bring all who we know with us. That's what God desires from us. So if you guys would come forward, take this, and we're going to sing this song.